question to start with tonight is what does it mean to be a Christian? Most of you in this room have heard me say many times that the essence of what it means to be a Christian is to trust the promises of God for you in Christ. What we find in the Beatitudes are in fact promises that we in fact must trust. And what we find in the Beatitudes is a test, a probing, deep questioning that goes straight to the heart of every man, woman, and child that claims Christ. Am I poor in spirit? Am I someone who recognizes my own sin? Do I mourn? Am I someone who actually wants to rid myself of my sin? Am I meek? Am I someone who doesn't make everything about me? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Am I someone who dwells on and can't get enough of time alone with Jesus? And now this week, we are being asked, am I merciful? Am I someone who has compassion on the predicament of others that they are in because of their own sin or because of a sin someone has committed against him. But here's the real test. The real test is, do I rebel against these questions? Do I turn my ears off or focus my attention on something else? Or do I actually hate that feeling in my stomach that I get when I'm convicted of my sin and long to be humbled and shaped along these lines for my own good and for the glory of God? Really, that is the question. Am I willing to be convicted by the Holy Spirit? Am I wanting, am I desiring to see these things so that by God's grace He can make me more and more the man or woman of God that He has created me to be? You see, these questions get at the heart of who you are, not what you do. Your attitude is indeed the most important thing about you when it comes to this kind of penetrating inquiry. The reason these questions work is because a Christian is something, a person who belongs to Christ is something before he does anything, and we have to be Christians before we can act like Christians. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite British preachers, said, we are not meant to control our Christianity. Our Christianity is meant to control us. What on earth does that mean? What does it mean we are not meant to control our Christianity? Our Christianity is meant to control us. It means principally that we don't go around doing Christian things. Listen carefully. We don't go around doing Christian things. We trust God's promises as Christians and allow the Holy Spirit to work through us who we are who He has made us to be and is making us to be. So, 
Where does Bible reading, prayer, sacrificial giving, etc., where do these things come into the Christian life? It comes in as we work with the Spirit to continually mold us and shape us more closely into the image of Jesus. This is called sanctification. But listen, what do we often do? We often run around like chickens with our heads cut off trying to do everything when our hearts haven't been or are not being changed. This, by the way, is the essence of what Pastor Benji has been preaching as he's gone through Galatians. My summary is don't ignore the good news of grace by trying to do things. Rather, live in the grace and freedom of the Spirit that you already are secure in Christ. Or, I hope I'm not misquoting you, I think today you said, I really liked how you said it, um, We don't pray and have our Bible study to be approved of by God, but we do these things to get God's power. You see the difference there? That's a subtle but absolutely essential difference. We don't do these things to get God's approval, to earn His approval, to make ourselves worthy of whatever it is that we want from God. He's not a vending machine. Put in a quarter and, oh, I want a nicer house. Put in two quarters and I want better health. That's not how it works. We are instead to trust in His grace, in His promises, so that, back to the Beatitudes, you can grow in your ability to recognize your own sin and to mourn over it. You can grow in your capacity for making things about God and other people rather than about looking out for number one. You can grow in your desire for holiness and you can grow in your disposition to be merciful to bring us to where we are in the Beatitudes tonight. This is the person who will receive all of the benefits of the kingdom of God Kingdom of God, which is now available to anyone who wishes to partake in its power. Not because he or she is perfect in their quiet times, but because God has invaded their souls and changed them into the kind of person who desires to have better quiet times, more sacrificial giving, better attitude towards being merciful towards others. And what does it mean to trust God's promises? It means by faith to turn to His Word and to invest our times, talents, and energies in blessing those around you. You cannot get away from doing. Don't misunderstand us. But your doing must be doing, consciously interacting with God, intentionally trusting Him in all that you do. That was heavy, wasn't it? That's introduction number one. We're going to get to Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And we're going to see tonight that we are to trust in God's mercies to us by being merciful to others. So there's a promise to trust. And the promise that we need to trust is that God will be merciful to us. How do we go about trusting? How do we put our attitudes and actions on the line so that someone looking at us will say, that person trusts the promise of God that He will be merciful to them. It's by being merciful to those around me. 
And I'm going to tell you a secret. Okay, listen, you can't spread this around because that would be bad. The people you need to be merciful to are the ones you're most annoyed with. So that means you all are going to be merciful to me this week, right? Now, I want to remind us what we talked about two or three weeks ago when we looked at divine mercy in Psalm 46. Last time we were in our series, I wanted us to see straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak, what is the kind of mercy that we should expect from God. If I'm going to receive mercy from God by being merciful, then I want to know what that mercy is He's going to give me looks like so that when He gives it to me, I can say, oh, there it is. See, it's in my life. I've received a benefit from a promise that I trusted in. We discovered that God's mercy is a dominant mercy. God's mercy dominates over other factors that would turn us away from Him. Things like, first of all, our sin. But we're also distracted from the mercy of God by our toys, our experiences, our relationships. And they distract us from Him and from what He has from us. This, by the way, is precisely exactly what the author of Hebrews is getting at in Hebrews 12. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since there are so many that we have seen who have run the race before us and we have seen what they have done, let us also lay aside every weight. Now what does that mean? I think what the author of Hebrews is getting at, you're laying aside the things that would distract you that are not necessarily sinful. We're not talking about stealing, lying, coveting. But we're talking about us putting aside those things that would keep us following hard after God. From learning, knowing, and trusting the promises of God. And, by the way, sin which clings to us so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, whatever we trust in that we we have not consciously put under God's authority... Everything that we don't use thoughtfully interacting with God in deliberate trust will be moved. It will be shaken. So if there is something that you kind of do with your back towards God, and you're saying, God, look at Uncle John over there. Don't look at me right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're laughing because you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> We, we don't necessarily want God involved in this area of our life unless we want something, right? Well, God, uh, I want some stuff for this, but then you can turn around and look the other way. Whatever it is, it will be shaken. It will be moved, we learned in Psalm 46. We must first and foremost look to God. Then we act with wisdom and counsel so that we could be better stewards of God's blessings in light of obedience to God, not obedience to to money or health or security of any kind. Note well. Pay attention. Listen. If you begin to trust God more than money, He will call you to waste your money or your time 
or your talents to give Him glory. This might mean that you're asked to give a portion of your income. It might be in the form of volunteering for some menial task at church or at home or at work. That That's beneath me. We, we pay people to do those things. It might mean that you go into a career where you earn less money than you otherwise could have. All of these things are obviously detrimental to living in obedience to money or to health or to security of any kind. But then you ask yourself, which God are you serving? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or health, or security, or relationships, or whatever else you want to put there. And because this is true, you will experience a form of distress, because here's another secret. Every single one of us has these things that we want to cling to, that we want to hold on to. Every single one of us. No one is an exception. Least of all me. Boy, this was a hard sermon to write. Too much conviction. There will be difficulty and hardship. But listen, while we are in this distress, this difficulty and hardship... While we are in these, and these are going to be viewed as bad by the world around us, by those who don't trust the promises of God by faith, we understand the point from two weeks ago. God will relieve our distress often by sending consuming fire. What does that mean? It means that God will burn away everything that we trust outside of Himself and His Word. This consuming fire may be taking you away from the things that take your attention away from Him. Could be the toys that you have. Could be your reputation that you've carefully guarded for decades. It could be your health. It could be a position that you value. Whatever it is that you and I are trusting in other than God and His promises, that thing you are trusting in is causing you distress and may be taken away by burning it away. The Chinese have a famous saying, He whom the gods wish to destroy, they send 40 years of prosperity. Why is that? Because then they're trusting in their prosperity and they're not trusting in the Lord. Okay, granted, I stole it from them. But listen, if you're trusting in your ability to make money, your ability to be strong, and I haven't been to a doctor in 40 years, you're on a slippery slope, brother. But, here's where the good news is. We are called to trust God's promises. Amen? So, what is the promise? In return of, by, of giving away these things, He will give you contentment. He will give you satisfaction. He will give you a sense of well-being. My friends, that is mercy! That He gives you these things. How many people do you know that are truly content that are satisfied, that have a sense of well-being. How many people like that do you know that make more money than you? Money certainly isn't the answer. 
Paul makes this distinction when he contrasts the living in or according to the flesh and living by or according to the Spirit. You remember, that's one of the things we said. So tonight, we need to learn to trust God's mercy to you by being merciful to others. So now we can get to this relatively straightforward task of understanding our verse today. What does it mean when Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy? Now, we've mentioned a couple times, but it bears reminding that to be blessed in this sense um, means to be the recipient of divine favor. That means you get something that is favor from God. Now, obviously, this entails happiness, but it doesn't guarantee that you will be happy. Remember, last, last Sunday morning, we talked about the fact that faith, hope, and love, by necessity will include emotions like anger, jealousy, and even mourning. But those who are the merciful, what is Jesus talking about here? What is He saying that those who are merciful? The merciful are those, the one whose bent is to show mercy. The one whose normal operating procedure is to be merciful to those around him or her. One whose bent is to show mercy, not merely indulging an occasional merciful impulse. Now obviously this is true in a limited sense here on earth. Generally a merciful person will receive mercy. But we know that that's not always true. So Jesus can't be talking about just ordinary mercy going around on planet earth. Instead, Jesus is talking eschatologically. Jesus is telling us, what will happen on the last day. Those who give themselves to being merciful will receive mercy from the only judge who ultimately matters. God Himself. Do you know, would you hit the air conditioning? People are falling asleep. (laughs) And it's hot up here too, so I'll tell you. We need instead to trust God's mercy to us by being merciful to others. We trust God God's mercy by being merciful. That's the correct response to this. And fortunately, here's some more good news for us. God is all about mercy. I'm just going to read some verses. Romans 2.4 Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, or in the NIV it says, Mercy is meant to lead you to repentance. How does God draw you in? He draws you in by being merciful. And then in verse 9.23, God wants to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. You are a container that God wants to pour mercy into. And if He pours mercy into you, then you are going to be able to pour it back out for others. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God being rich in mercy. Now, pause just for a second. Normally we think of rich as being rich in things, right? How rich is God in terms of things? He's got everything, right? I mean, so it's, it's kind of silly to say, well, God owns the cattle, cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills and he owns the planet and he owns all the stars and stuff too. How does Paul emphasize God's mercy, or God, excuse me, God's riches here? He's rich in mercy. 
because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead. And here's how He is. Even while we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Romans 15, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Why does He want you and me glorifying God? Because He's been merciful even to us. Philippians 1, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. I think I typed the wrong verse in there. Okay. Right now, you and I should be shouting hallelujah! Because you and I are the object of God's mercy. That kindness, that redemption, that glorious plucking up from the mire and mud and blood that wrapped its ugly arms around us and held us away from God. God has taken that power away. You are free in Him. You are gloriously free in Him because of God's mercy. Therefore, trust in God's mercy to you by being merciful to others. Now, Jesus in particular had to be merciful for our sake. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of His people, to Turn God's wrath away because of my sin. Listen to this. Jesus, in mercy, raised a widow's son from the dead. He healed lepers. He forgave adulteresses. He cleansed the demonized. He rewarded mustard seed faith with a powerful display of the healing of God Almighty incarnate. Those are just five of Jesus' miracles that are attributed to His mercy. But the quintessential demonstration of Jesus' mercy is in Matthew 10, Matthew 9. Jesus, as he reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came there and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Time out for a second. Imagine the Soviet Union had won the Cold War. And imagine the Soviets in every town had tax collectors. And so, in the city of Santa Maria, California, there would be a group of these Soviets, or worse, Americans who were working for the Soviets, collecting taxes from you and me and shipping it back to Russia. That is what they mean by tax collectors. And Jesus is sitting in a room full of these guys. And when the Pharisees saw this, think ultra-Orthodox patriots, They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, come on, guys. Come back. Be patriots to your country. Don't mess with those criminal Soviets. But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Were they sick? Obviously. And evidently, they had at least some recognition of that because they were sitting there with Jesus. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
For I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Why is this the quintessential demonstration of Jesus' mercy? Because He came and ate with people in their sin. He came and joined us where we are. Emmanuel. God with us. See how close these sermons are to each other? Question. Do you want to be well? Admit you're sick. Do you want to be healed? Admit that you are injured. Do you want to be freed from slavery to sin? Admit the truth in your heart that you are a slave to things that disgust you. Trust God's mercy to you by being merciful to others. And what does God say for Himself? Hosea 6.6 For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Shall I come with all these great things? Verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord your God require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? That is what God is calling you and me. To do. To all this, Paul responds doxologically. He sings. He's just so stoked. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Trust God's mercy to be merciful to you by being merciful to others. So, here we are. We know that God's mercy dominates over all its enemies that wish to control our hearts and minds. We know, secondly, that God's mercy is abundantly rich and powerful to take from us whatever misery we are in, recognizing that this mercy is not comfortable and is often found in a consuming fire to burn away the things that would keep us from Him. Now, we can trust Him to take us through whatever experience on earth we must suffer so that we will be more like Him. What did I just say? I just said, you can trust God's mercy for you no matter what you experience because you have seen in His Word and in your life what it looks like to have God's mercy showered on you. Even the mercy that burns away the things of you on you that keep you from Him. So what do we need to trust? What does this trusting look like? Gary Tyra put this, puts it particularly well. He says, Jesus' followers must cultivate a capacity for compassion rather than harsh judgmentalism in their dealings with others. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Mercy really means a sense of pity plus a desire to relieve the suffering. You and I must trust God's promises that our obedience will not be in vain. Catch this. You and I need to trust that in God's promises that our obedience to Him will not be in vain. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. You've heard me say that grace is us getting what we don't deserve and mercy is us getting what mercy is us not getting what we do deserve. Boy, I wrote that wrong. 
I still believe that is true, but Martin Lloyd-Jones clarifies the difference between the two sides of the same coin. He says, grace is especially associated with men in their sins, and mercy is especially associated with men in their misery. Grace is talking about what God does for your sin. Mercy talks about how to relieve the anguish that you are in because of your sin or because of the sin of someone else. John Stott makes it a little clearer than that. He says, Mercy is compassion for people in need. Richard Lenski, another author, helpfully distinguishes it from grace. He says, The noun eleos, mercy, always deals with what we see of pain, misery, and distress. These results of sin and charis, or grace, always deals with the sin and guilt itself. The one, mercy, extends relief. The other, grace, pardon. The one cures and heals and helps. That's mercy. And the other, grace, cleanses and reinstates. Do you want to be the kind of person who receives mercy from the only judge that really matters? Then make sure that your heart among the people that you live with and work with and have to do with is full of curing and healing and helping. Look around those, look at those around you who are sick, who are hurt, needy, and recognize them as such as opposed to condemning them for their misery. What does this mean? It means that annoying person that you're getting fed up with, that person needs your mercy. That's a painful thing to hear, isn't it? You don't want to hear that. Get back to preaching, Greg. Trust in God's mercy to you by being merciful to others. But I have, I have another question. One more vital question concerning all of the Beatitudes, but I've saved it this question intentionally for right now because it needs to come home on us. Do I earn mercy by giving someone else mercy? Be merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Do I earn God's mercy by being merciful to someone else? Do I earn the kingdom of heaven or comfort or the earth or satisfaction by doing the repenting, mourning, thinking of others and hungering and thirsting after God's presence? You're all, you're all good Baptists, right? You've all been in Baptist Sunday school. The answer is, of course not. That's absurd from our point of view. So why would Jesus put it this way? Why would Jesus make it kind of look like that's what we're doing in the Beatitudes? I told you this is a test, right? Why, why would it be this kind of test? Well, I think there's two answers to that. And the one is that Jesus often said shocking things because He knew that there would be people on a 100-degree chapel on December 1st, 2013, falling asleep. But He wanted to shake you guys up and me up so that we would be awake. But John Stott gives another answer. This is not because we can merit mercy by mercy, or forgiveness by forgiveness, but because we cannot receive the mercy and forgiveness of God unless we repent, and we cannot claim to have repented of our sins if we are unmerciful to the sins of others. 
What saves us from human perspective? God saves us. God reaches down. He pulls us up out of the pit. He breathes spiritual life into us. But what saves us from our perspective is trusting God's promise. And the demonstration of trusting God's promise to receive mercy is by being merciful. And we do that because God enables us to do it. Now, if dining with tax collectors and sinners was the quintessential demonstration of Jesus' mercy, there's a parable that is equally a quintessential story about what this mercy looks like. You know the story. A man was robbed. The good people refused to sully their hands by helping him, but a bad person, a wicked Samaritan, a Soviet... Uh, an abortionist, oh my goodness, sullied his hands, got down and dirty to help the man in his distress. And essentially, Jesus answers, asked his questioner, who did the right thing? The good people or the abortionist doctor? The doctor said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Get down and dirty. Be willing to be muckified by their sin, by their filth, so that you can bring them out of it. There you go. Forgive the sinner, help the injured. Having the kind of heart that does these two things, all the while trusting God's promises and deliberately, consciously, thoughtfully considering God's immediate presence with you in that situation, that kind of person will be the kind of person who receives God's mercy when he or she, you or I, stand before the only judge who matters. Therefore, trust God's mercy to you by being merciful to others. Have we ever seen this kind of mercy? Is there anybody that exemplifies it? I like this story. One young woman who was born in Northern Ireland wanted to bless people. So rather than thinking she needed to go to some far-off country and live among the natives or something to, in order to do good things for God, she started a Sunday school class. And this Sunday school class was for the shawlies. And the shawlies were the mill girls who wore shawls instead of hats. The point was they were dirt poor and they were coarse and nobody liked to be with them. These girls like, you know, I don't know, nomadic farm workers the people who pick your strawberries, your lettuce. They were looked down upon and needed someone to reach down in mercy and among other things, teach them the mercy of God. People responded. 500 people were pretty soon in her class and she was ministering them not only the, the grace, the mercy of God, but she was giving them mercy and other people were helping her have this mercy. But Amy suffered from neuralgia. This is a disease they called back then of the nerves that made her whole body weak and achy and also sometimes put her in bed for a week or more at a time. She had economics against her. She had prejudice against her. You don't want to help those people. Not only that, but she had physical problems that were against her as well. But through a sequence of events that we're not going to go into here, where Amy began to trust 
God's promises more and more. She opened herself more and more to greater areas of trust, and pretty soon she was commissioned by the Church of England to work in India. The Hindu temple children were young girls who were dedicated to the gods and forced into prostitution in order to earn money for the monks. Now, don't get me started on that. I just... There is no way you could look at that and think something right out of that. But anyways, much of Amy's work was with these young ladies, some of whom were saved from this forced prostitution. For 55 years, she worked... Amy Carmichael worked with no return to England, laboring to show mercy to those who never would have seen mercy. She labored to show the heart of Jesus to those who would have been blind. When the children were asked what drew them to Amy, they most often replied, it was love. Amma, their name for her, loved us. In one of her many books, Amy Carmichael said, the missionary life is simply a chance to die. We could say the same for the missionaries who live in our houses in Santa Maria, California. Trust God's mercy to you by being merciful to others. And Lord, I pray that you would indeed enable us to be merciful to others. I pray that you would open our hearts and open our hands so that others will see you working in us and through us for your glory, that they would see that you indeed are a merciful God because we are the ones showing them your mercy. Bless us this week and help us, Lord Jesus, to seek you and find you while you may be found. In Jesus' name, amen.